find the gap between the train and the platform. Time to get off. I lifted my headphones from my ears and listened carefully for the next message. First stop, Redfern. I slammed my book shut with a silent thud and positioned myself in front of the doors as they slid open. I looked down. There really was a gap, about 30 centimetres in width. Just like the aforementioned train, books contain and transport people from all walks of life. Over time, literary critics have attempted to identify who holds authority in the reading experience. That is, what is the role of the reader and composer and their relation to the creation of meaning. Just like the one between the train and the platform, a gap exists between the reader and the author. It's in this gap where the book exists, full of readers' interpretations and author's intentions. So, should one be superior, or should they work in collaboration? Find out on today's episode of Laudable Literature. That's right, Huey Lewis, today we are going back in time. But before that, we have a little surprise. Our podcast today will be blessed with the presence of two celebrated Australian creators. I'm John Fulcher. Australian poet, teacher and literature enthusiast. John's poems have featured and have been widely anthologised in newspapers and journals alike. I'm Amanda Laurie. Australian author and novelist. Amanda has written over seven full-length novels and is the recipient of the Patrick White Literary Award. So... We've got John on the phone, Amanda in the studio, and a multitude of questions in relation to meaning. Now, I think it's safe to say that everybody writes for a very different reason. I'm curious, John, why do you write? (laughs) It's hard to actually put into words. I had a friend who said whenever he's asked the same question, he says, oh, why breathe? (laughs) Um, Because it's just something that you do which kind of keeps you alive. Yeah, that's a fascinating insight there, John. Amanda, what are your thoughts? It's a compulsion that I don't understand. It's been with me since I was very young. Interesting. And I think that these propulsions and intentions to write have been evident throughout history. In fact, in Henry VI... Huzzah! Shakespeare uttered that if you gave him a pen and ink, he would write his mind. You see, the Stoic words of William here are affirmed by the notions of textual authority from his time. Sir, sir, what are these notions? Well, that's a brilliant question. Textual authority from this paradigm was defined as the ability of a text to realise its author's intentions successfully. Historically, the creation of meaning within literature existed with the author. Literature was treated as didactic by readers and critics alike. Authors had an intention, they conveyed this through language, and readers interpreted this at the other side. This theory was loosely known as intentionalism, an idea that had its roots in romanticism. You see, in many versions of this theory, the artist or author is essentially a communicator, one whose work of art has a sole meaning that only he can truly understand. The meaning of the work was solely based on the author's intentions. That's quite restricting. And I think a lot of people would agree. John and Amanda, do you think that the author's intention is the sole meaning of a text? 
Absolutely not, no. But the meaning of the poem is individual. Um, it doesn't mean a poem can mean anything. Okay. Um, but it means that the slight subtleties and variations and nuances mm. change every time a different person responds to it. Okay, and we're already getting this sense of shared responsibility between author and reader. What are your thoughts on this notion, Amanda? Um, my pleasure as a reader comes from inserting myself into the text like a kind of co-creator with the author. Ah. Um, I like fiction that doesn't explain everything and that leaves me room as a reader to speculate and, and reflect. Oh, so you like ambiguity in fiction and you want the author to be consciously aware of the reader and their ability to connect. To extend on that, I think that sometimes all a good book is missing is another voice to the conversation, and more likely than not, that voice is yours. So, if the author is not on top of the inherent meaning food chain, then who is? Well, to every author, there's a pen. To every pen, there's a page. And to every page, there's a word. Gone are the days in which the author is superior. Perhaps the power lies in the words themselves. Next stop, the 50s. Ah yes, the 1950s. The men are rocking their sideburns, the women are rocking their poodle skirts, and the soda fountains are running on high. But to a literary enthusiast, the 1950s might be known for something completely different. The emergence of a new literary theory that would change the game forever. New Criticism, a popular literary theory that emphasised close reading to discover how a work of fiction can function as an autonomous text. This literary theory was made popular in the first half of the 20th century. It focused on an intrinsic approach to the creation of meaning. Everything needed to understand a piece of literature was found within, in the language and in the ways in which it was crafted and shaped. And, to no surprise, new critics paid little attention to neither the reader nor the author. To put it simply, new critics had a fascination with the variety and degree of literary devices that were used in fiction. Now, this theory is well known for the critics and authors who so fervently defended it. <clears throat> I'm Robert Penn Watson, American essayist and critic, and I believe that the meaning of fiction lies in the language. Oh, jolly good. My name is T.S. Eliot. I'm an English critic and poet, and I believe that we should see the best work of our time and the best work of 2,500 years ago with the same eyes. It's Clance Brooks here, American essayist and professor. I firmly believe that if poetry and fiction are going to be analysed, then they should be analysed for themselves not their creator. All fabulous insights, but perhaps the most well-known from this paradigm is a series of essays co-authored by W.K. Wimsatt and Monroe Beardsley titled The Verbal Icon. In their work, the pair created the notion of the intentional fallacy. They essentially stated that an author's intention or master plan behind a text was neither available nor desirable for judging its success. They further argued that at the time of publishing, a text belongs to the public. 
gone with the days in which the author was on top of the food chain. Rather, the only evidence left of said author was in the words themselves. But is excluding the author entirely beneficial to the reading experience? If we ignore the thoughts, feelings, and purpose behind the creation of a text, are we unduly limiting our ability to connect? To understand? To lose ourself in the words? Well, let's take it over to the experts. Amanda, do you think a conscious awareness of the author's intention is a must when reading? Well, the author's intention imposes a set of constraints, but the reader is free to make um, what they will of it. Okay, so a subtle reference there to the fact that an author's intention does matter. John, do you agree with Amanda? Look, in a sense, Mitch, the poem doesn't exist on the page. Uh, It exists halfway between the reader's mind and the writer's mind, uh, and it's dependent on the experience that those two people bring to bear on the actual poem, which is sitting out there in Limbo Land. Ah, Limbo Land, my favourite place. And it's also the place where the text is, as you say, in the gap between the reader's mind and the author's mind. So, if the author is not superior, and neither is language, then how about the reader? Next up, the 60s. Nineteen sixty-four, may be well known for the endless protests against the Vietnam War, or the first marriage of Elvis Presley. But to the literary enthusiast, it is known for something far more exciting. Roland Barthes, a French literary critic, took literary theory by storm. His work, aptly titled The Death of the Author, was published further attacking the importance of the author, or their lack of, in the reader-writer relationship. And no, Bart's death of the author is not a misnomer. The theory to which Bart belonged actively sought to praise the reader and their experience with the text. The reader response theory gained prominence in the 1960s, particularly throughout the US and Germany. To them, reading was like creating a dance. Each reader choreographed their own combination of twirls and spins, influenced by their personal context and experience. Amanda, I'm curious, what are your thoughts upon this newfound Bart belief? Um, The importance of reader response, what the reader brings to a text, um, is exemplified in uh, the experiences we all have, where a friend gives us a book to read and says, how great it is, and we read it, and we don't like it, or may not even be able to finish it. Interesting, Amanda. And I think that the literary theorists from this time seem to convey a similar idea. Louise Rosenblatt, a prominent academic and university professor, often warned her students to avoid preconceived notions about the proper way to react to any work. C.S. Lewis... British essayist and novelist, most well known for the creation of Narnia, constructed a critical piece titled An Experiment in Criticism, proposing that the quality of books be judged not on how they're written, but how they're read. The theory of read response was new, revolutionary, and was a pre-licked finger held high to test an already blowing gale. But it is fraught with problems. If they ask me, 
You see, authors make extreme sacrifices when creating literature. They toil over every word, ensuring that the correct verb goes there and the perfect noun slots here. They neglect all other duties and responsibilities and put their lives on hold. For us, the reader. So why should we have the right, in the comfort of our humble abodes, to rip and tear to shreds every piece of their work? Does a reader deserve the ability to create any interpretation they want? If so, why write in the first place? Well, let's consult the professionals. John, do you think that there's an endless amount of interpretations to a text? I, I think the answer is yes and no. There are endless interpretations. As I say, for every reader, there's a different interpretation. But I don't think that means a poem can mean anything. If you read that, um, William Wordsworth's Daffodils and tell me it's about the moon landing, it's not. You're wrong. Okay, so there are endless interpretations, but some of these are invalid. Amanda, what are your thoughts on this situation? Well, even if I discover the author meant something contrary to how I read his or her text, it doesn't matter because the text is something I constructed from his or her words regardless of his or her intention. So it's the reader's job, but the author assists them. And I think that these very insights touch on every part of the puzzle. You see, the theories of Bart, W.K. Wimsatt, Monroe Beardsley and their contemporaries represent a specific paradigm, a certain point in time that reflected our attitudes toward inherent meaning in fiction at that point. No academic, esteemed author or mere literary enthusiast can step back and say which theory is correct. What it is safe to say, however, is that author and reader are inherently linked. They exist in a relationship of symbiosis, and one cannot function properly without the other. I once googled the purpose of reading. It told me to connect the ideas on the page to what I already knew. But as humans, we turn to literature to escape, to free ourselves from the burdens of reality. And there is no one ruler of a text. It exists in the gap between the reader's interpretation and the author's intention. It creates a space between words and between the lines for the reader to enter into the text. The poem doesn't exist on the page. Uh, it exists halfway between the reader's mind and the writer's mind. So, regardless of who holds authority, let's just enjoy fiction for the wonderful journey that it takes us on. I've been your host, Mitchell. I'm John Fulcher. I'm Amanda Laurie. And next time you read Mind the Gap. <laughs>